guys, and welcome to the Because Made Me podcast, the podcast that takes a look at all things 90s and answers some of the most important questions of the decade. Because maybe you are going to be the one who saves me. I'm your host, John Connolly, and thank you for whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. And we have a good show for you this week, guys, too. We have our first of three parts into Britpop, the musical sensation of the 90s in the United Kingdom. We have some regular 90s trivia. Our sarcastic teenager makes a return to talk about navigation. And we have the usual bits and nonsense that we usually do whenever we do these things. If you guys are on social media, why don't you check us out, Because Maybe Pod, in usual cases, on Twitter and Tumblr. And if you're on Facebook, look for Because Maybe Podcast. Uh, We do have a YouTube channel that I want you guys to subscribe to. However, we ran into one or two issues this week. Um, Apparently, the video that I put up of Wayne's World uh, violated their guidelines. uh, Repetitive spam content, apparently. Um, I'm not a big YouTube guy in terms of, you know, putting content out there. I mean, you know, I know how to use Podbean and I know all that stuff, but I don't know YouTube. Uh, so if there's anybody listening who has a YouTube channel, uh, dabbles a little bit in the YouTube, you know, please, a little bit in the YouTube, that sounds how old I am. If you guys are in, in, if you guys put content on YouTube, I should say, and you've run into some issues and not how to get around their guidelines, but how to make sure that your content doesn't, uh, violate those guidelines because you know from what i've seen and what i've based what content i've put on the youtube channel i have done anything different to most other channels in that style but if you guys know uh you know if you guys know a way to uh make your videos always work on youtube i'd like to hear from you uh because maybe podcast at gmail.com and i'll tell you exactly what i did and you can tell me that what i've been is an absolute moron but what i want to do with the youtube channel is kind of put extra content on there if I've realized that I've missed something out of the main podcast to, you know, not wait until this part of the show to clarify it or whatever. And I'll get to that here in just a second. But, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want us to have a big community, big open community. And the last thing I want to do is alienate a potential uh, hosting source by doing something that is going to get me banned from it. You know, I'm, I'm this, nothing was intentional. I just wanted to, you know, to post a sample of the podcast and... Yeah, that's what happened. So if you guys know how to use YouTube, please let me know. I am begging for help. And also, guys, if you want to contact Because Maybe Podcast at gmail.com uh, to advertise your work, your podcast, your YouTube channel, etc., 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 please don't hesitate to shoot me an email. I'll be glad to um, glad to accommodate you. Again, I only have one condition. It's kind of a double, uh, double-edged sword. If you want me to advertise your work, please advertise mine in return. I'm not asking for cash payment. I'm just asking for a shared exposure, for lack of a better term. I mean, I understand that, you know, one of the big things is people want to make uh, freelancers and small uh, small production houses in terms of music, art, graphics, uh, voice work, script work, you know, work for exposure, work for exposure. And I think that's wrong if you were a huge company. But if you're small like I am, and if you were small or medium and we want to share audiences, kind of expand our base, it's, I think it's okay to, to, you know, expose each other to each other's audiences. Artistically, that is not 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 you know, <laughs> um, but you know, if you guys are interested in uh, advertising, please let me know, and I'll go ahead and give you a plug during the podcast. I know we've had uh, success the last couple of weeks plugging the holodex, and I want to thank, like I said last week, Greg Gregory was a uh, big help. But if you guys want to, you know, want to expand your audience, just like I want to expand mine, if we can have a mutual exchange of information, that would be absolutely great. Um, I also spoke with uh, one of the people who has been helping me get this podcast up and running. And she gave me a lot, a lot of feedback. She hasn't had the time to listen to the first couple episodes until early last week. And she gave me a lot of feedback, a lot of it good and a lot of it 
I bristle too, but I can see where, where it was coming from, should we say. Uh, one of the things that I need to do is figure out uh, something in the new year. Uh, I know that, for example, look, I'm one of these guys, I love the holiday season. I love spending Christmas time with my family, and, you know, that's that's what we do in the Connolly household. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to take a break uh, during the new year. So that's, you know, the last episode I think is going to be on... Uh, December 19th, let me just click around here and, and figure that out, but I think the last episode is going to be on uh, December 19th for this year, and then we're not going to be back until three weeks later on uh, January 17th, okay, actually it's December 20th, and then back on January 17th, that gives me enough time to plan the next block of episodes, because I wanted to do like 13, 14 at a time, then do another block of 13 or 14, and then you know take a break in between to kind of refresh the podcast a little bit, switch up, tweak things that are not working, enhance things that are, and so on and so forth. But um, I'm enjoying myself. I, I thought there would be certain things that I would tolerate and certain things that I would dislike. But I need to know now, is that a good idea? Do you think I should take a break? And if I do take a break, what should I do in between the, the break? Should I release some snippet information? Should I just completely and utterly shut down and just do social media stuff? Um, you know, Help me out with this, guys. What what do you want to hear? What do you think I should do between December 20th and January 17th in terms of content for this podcast? Should I even have a break? Um, I've got enough ideas for material myself, plus with any any you guys' feedback, so there's going to be a lot of information that I can research. Um, should I just go ahead and do just continuous? Um, should I do, in the break time, piece together segments, you know, put together like a, a Frankenstein pick-a-mix show uh, of, you know, uh, skits and um, trivia and so on and so forth, you know, just, just kind of put like 10 minutes of information together and push it out to the feed. Again, I need to know these things. I, I don't know what to do next <laughs> in terms of that, so any help that you guys can give me, we can make a better show together and make everything move forward. So let's look at last week's episode before we move on. I want to close the door finally on uh, that on the episode the answer to social media question of the week goes once again to cat uh she said system of a down sugar is good to sit in your car and headbang that i agree with that is a great song uh you know thanks once again for cat for listening and giving us the feedback that we need she's becoming a loyal listener and i can't thank you enough uh, i also want to give uh thank you to greg gregory who spent the time with me last week talking about Wayne's World and having a good time, and, you know, we had some good interaction. You guys seem to like that. Um, I can say that Greg will be back on the podcast, not for a couple of weeks, but he will be here on November 8th, and then for a couple of episodes after that, and we look forward to having, you know, having him with us. This week, I am flying solo, but next week, we will have uh, somebody with us as well. So, you know, we are going in the right direction, and I, I like what we're doing. I wanted to clarify a couple of things that I said last week that I missaid, um, even though my notes stated that I missaid something, I want to apologize to uh, Tia Korea. I apologize once again for getting the name wrong. It's nine o'clock in the morning and I'm exhausted. Um, I said last week this. Also, also another m- musical thing, Tia Korea. Again, I apologize if I've butchered that. If I get it wrong, Tia Korea. Korea. She sang all her lyrics. Yeah, definitely. You definitely hear it was her. And I didn't. That that's a phenomenal, powerful voice. She should have had a career in music as well as movies. She probably could have. And that was stupid of me, 
because what I meant to say was Tia Correa should have had a bigger career in music than what she did. Not she should have had a career in music. So I want to apologize for that. I wanted to clarify my statement that you know that wasn't intended to uh, to to be misinformation. That's just something that I said and I didn't realize until after I'd published the podcast. So once again, uh, clarification. I also got some interesting feedback from Red about Wayne's World 2. He said, I think the whole forced overly pushed feeling of Wayne's World 2 was an intentional ploy to parody the first movie. I always thought it was their way of poking fun at themselves. The story is an afterthought. It seems like they wrote the jokes, then rushed to write a thin story to try and adhere the jokes together. Um, yeah, I could see where, uh, where you could think Wayne's World... Two could be uh, par- not a parody of what they went through on Wayne's World 1. The only other movie I know that's done something like that was uh, when Kevin Smith wrote Zack and Miri. Uh, a lot of that, he said himself, was he wrote a movie on the making of Clerks, you know. And you could tell by some of the things that in that movie that, you know, that went through it. Like, you know, they had to shoot at the store, but they could only shoot at night. And all of my friends are involved and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I can I can see where that's coming from. And that's some, so that's a great observation. And I thank Red for uh, bringing that to us. I also wanted to ask you one more thing about um, potential uh, change to the format of the show. I mentioned that I got some feedback last week and I've taken a lot of it to heart and I'm trying to figure out, you know, the best way to do it. But somebody said that the 90s trivia section that I usually tack on to the end, uh, I should do that more up front so that, you know, the, the main meat and potatoes of the episode is right slap bang in the middle and we go straight from there out. Uh, what do you guys think? Front or back? What would probably be the best way to do this? So that's the housekeeping for this week, guys. Um, again, thank you for giving me the feedback. I do need it because sometimes I can't find my own behind with both of my hands. Um, but I am, you know, I am looking to make this better. And, you know, I'm looking to make it better, not just for me, but for you guys too. So with that in mind, we go to me ranting and raving and rabbiting on about Britpop. Cultural Impact. This week on Cultural Impact, we take a look at Britpop. This is our first in three parts looking at the scene and the genre of music that kind of encapsulated the United Kingdom in the mid to late 90s. Uh, This week, we talk about the beginning stages and the beginning phase of the movement, ranging from about late 1989, yes, I know it's not part of the 90s, but it's close enough when we're talking about something like this, late 1989 to very, very early 1995. So what was Britpop? Well, Britpop was a musical genre that originated from the United Kingdom. Uh, Usually, when people talk about it, they talk about from around 1993 to... 2000-2001. The peak of the uh, era was 1994 through 1997, and followed by an even steeper decline from around 1998 to 2000. Uh, it was usually encapsulated by bands who were working class, and what I mean by that, they came from poor parts of the United Kingdom, poor parts of cities in the United Kingdom, I should say, and usually from hard-working industrial towns. Um, there were very few higher educated people in the movement. And what I mean by that is very few of them went to university. Uh, they usually went to a trade school or an art school or learned some kind of, you know, some kind of career involving their hands or using creativity in their head. Very few, very, very few educated people. And not to say stupid people, but just very few people who, who were educated. The main players of the movement 
were from in and around working class cities in the United Kingdom. So you had Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, the northeast of England, the northwest of England. Uh, you had South Wales, where the mines and the and, and the steelworks and the dockyards were. You had Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, southeast England. You know anywhere where there was a large gaggle of working class communities, you'd find a band from Britpop came from there. Uh, the movement was also buoyed politically too. Um, it was a renewed sense of working class left wing movement in the United Kingdom. And what I mean by that is a lot of these working class towns were hit hard by the policies of Margaret Thatcher. A lot of people were unemployed in places like Liverpool and Manchester, you know, and a lot of it had to do with the policies that were enacted by Margaret Thatcher and her conservative government. Uh, it seemed like the movement was moving in a direction when people started listening, and even though Margaret Thatcher herself was out of power, her political party was still involved, and it seemed more when rather than if the Tory party was going to be ousted from power, and a lot of it had to do with new attitudes that developed from this music scene and some hip young leadership, which we'll get into further on down the line. Another reason why it was popular was because it sold newspapers. Traditional newspapers, music magazines, uh, gossip magazines even. This dominated a lot of gossip column inches, a lot of front pages. You know, just it, it was just big. It was everywhere. And part of that reason was because the band members of most of the bands were very, very charismatic. And they also had a lot of infighting. And not just infighting, a lot of bands had heated rivalries. Uh, obviously, the biggest example is Oasis and Blur. But, you know, they were always snipping at each other back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, it led to the tabloids' dream. You know, it was it was wonderful for the tabloids. Um, and it did kind of lead to... Not so much lead, but morph into a movement known as Cool Britannia. So, not just music was starting to be affected by this... Fashion started to be affected by this. Politics started to be affected by this. Literature, sport, movies, whatever you want to think of, Britain was chic in this kind of world. And it stemmed from the music, but it kind of encapsulated everything else to the point where the music was part of an additional movement as opposed to being its own movement. Does that make sense? So, you know, you wouldn't call a fashion icon Britpop, but it was part of Cool Britannia. And after a while, Britpop morphed into Cool Britannia while still keeping Britpop. For those tech listening to us, it's like when Google became Alphabet. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, so Britpop itself, what about it stood out from other musical genres at the time? Um, it was defined mainly by epic choruses. Loud, loud, big, epic, bombastic choruses. And lyrics throughout the song that referenced working class themes. So three examples. Round Our Way by Oasis. Uh... Perfect lyrics describing young adults' lives growing up in a working-class town. You know, talking about playing football in the park, you know, 18 aside, uh, or 25 aside, excuse me. And, you know, playing until until you get tired or the next goal wins, you know. Um, just just something that meant a lot to a lot of young, young men, for lack of a better term, growing up in those towns. You know, the only thing they could do is drink, play football, take drugs, and have a, have a good time as best they could. Uh, park Life by Blur had some spoken lyrics by Phil Daniels, who moviegoers will recognize as Jimmy from Quadrophena, one of the greatest musical movies of all time, but uh, also about London life and how working-class London kind of poodles on. You know, there were a lot of... 
a lot of references that were quintessentially British in that song. You know, I feed the pigeons, I sometimes feed the sparrows. Talking about how the dustmen come around, which if you're not familiar with the Britishese, that means bin men or trash men, depending on where you are. And then you had Common People by Pulp, which was, you know, a very, very darker description, especially in that third verse, of working class life in Britain and how it's not something to joke at. There are people, you know, who were who are in this and they're always going to be in this you know um that was one of the most powerful pieces of music but again it's centered around a very very unique british sound epic chorus and very very working class lyrics the verses of the songs were very very melodic and headbang you know not headbanging like in wayne's world bohemian rhapsody but kind of you know nod back and forth you know very very you know very very loosey-goosey but something you get into kind of harking back to the beatles and the stones and they and their earlier works the songs themselves weren't very very experimental in the sense that it was usually verse chorus or verse bridge chorus you know uh eight bar intro and usually around three to six chords in every song and ranging between i don't know 80 to 120 beats per minute so these you know very very mid-tempo they could they could be considered middle of the road but they're very very mid-tempo and arranged in such a way where you know you could identify one straight away uh also Strangely enough, all of the singers, and I only noticed this when I was doing my research, but all of the singers, you could kind of tell where they were from. Usually you can't really tell that in a lot of different, uh, a lot of music that came from America, you couldn't tell where the accents were. But with the British scene, you definitely could. You could hear a Mancunian accent. You could hear a Liverpoolian accent. You could hear a Newcastle accent, a Welsh accent, a Sheffield accent, coming through everything that was done. So with all these accents, you could hear the personal lyrics that were coming through. Uh, Everyone wrote kind of lyrics that meant something to them. All the songs had some kind of meaning. Even if the songwriters themselves didn't know what the meaning was, everything had some kind of a meaning. Uh, It was usually interpreted by their fans if they didn't have one themselves, but they were also very, very, very personal to the person writing. Even if they pushed them off into characters. So I'll give you an example. On The Great Escape by Blur, there is a song called Dan Abnormal. And that's an anagram of Damon Albarn, the, the guy who wrote it, the lead singer of Blue. And so, you know, he was pushing off some of his thoughts, but he didn't want to make it first person. So instead, he transposed it onto his character. And that's where, you know, that came from. Uh, usually, the acts in the Britpop scene were kind of inspired by m- the major acts from the 60s and the 70s. So you had the usual suspects like the Beatles and the Stones and the Who. You also had the Kinks and the Bee Gees. I know what you're thinking. The Bee Gees. The Bee Gees. What the look? If you were unfamiliar with the rock music history, which you know I wouldn't blame you if you weren't, uh, the Bee Gees were not just this disco band that we all know and hate. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I lie. You know, I, Bee Gees get a lot of hate. But uh, before they became this disco band uh, that you wanted to throw a disco ball at, they were actually one of the best rock acts in the world. Uh, some of their stuff before they turned to disco. You can't argue with anybody who's listened to it that it's anything but some of the best music that's ever been written. And, you know, so, and that bled a lot into a lot of the acts. Um, but not only did they use the rock acts from that era, but there was a lot of Motown, a lot of funk, uh, disco, as I mentioned, R&B, just everything that you threw in there was kind of a melting pot, especially in that first wave of Britpop. It was a big melting pot of different styles, different, uh, performances and different performers uh but acts from the 80s were also not 
uh, ignored. Uh, and in fact, in a lot of cases, you could point to these four in particular that I'm about to mention, and you could pick a band at random and see where they were either inspired or worked with during that time. So you have Paul Weller and The Jam. Um, I'm using those two things separately because Paul Weller did have his own solo career. So, you know, Paul Weller and The Jam. Uh, the Smiths, I mean, a lot of people were friends with uh, Johnny Marr during that time. Uh, a lot of guys were influenced by U2 because U2 hadn't become the U2 we all know and get irritated at today. Kind of like the Bee Gees. And the Stone Roses themselves. Uh, the Stone Roses were a big, big, big influence on, uh, for lack of a better term, pre-Britpop, as I call it. And I'll explain what that means here in a minute. Uh, the Britpop sound itself was very, very distinctive. But there are certain things that I want to clarify before I go even deeper. And that is, what and what are and what aren't Britpop bands? Uh, I had a conversation with my wife while I was putting this together. And she kind of was looking through my notes and wondering... Why aren't you talking about the Spice Girls in all this? And I laughed. I didn't mean to laugh at her. I laughed at, at, at in my head, this notion that the Spice Girls were a Britpop band. And she kind of looked at me like that. So I'm, I'm trying to clarify. I'm not trying to, you know, get on my soapbox. As far as I am concerned, John Connolly, right here, recording this podcast, as far as I am concerned, Britpop had a distinctive style and a distinctive way of doing things. Like I mentioned, the working-class lyrics, the uh, the fact that it was an organic band setup, meaning it wasn't just thrown together by labels. So, for that purpose, for me, the Spice Girls are not Britpop. Are they British? Yes. Are they a popular rock pop act? Yes. But are they Britpop? No. That's like saying, and I use this example, that's like saying, well, R.E.M. were grunge, because they were American, and they had a, a, an electric guitar. You know, so... The Spice Girls were not Britpop. They will not be spoken about in this context. And I'm I'm sorry if you think that if you think that they are, but I, I respectfully disagree. The Spice Girls are not Britpop. Two other bands who I absolutely love. Uh, one I've seen live, and the other one I wish I could see live because I think they're they're brilliant. The Manic Street Preachers and Radiohead. In my opinion, these two were also not Britpop. The Manic Street Preachers, yes, they came from working-class Wales. I've been to Blackwood, Wales. My grandmother used to take me there when I'd visit her to the market up there. All I can say is, oh my word. Um, I don't want to use the usual jokes, you know, six fingers, ha 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 ha, but it is a very, very bleak town. It is one of these places that, again, was decimated by the uh, the policies of the Thatcher government. Uh, but they were already established by the time the Britpop scene came around. They were already, you know, they were already well-known. They'd already made three albums at this point. And, you know, their lyrics and their uh, music didn't kind of fit into the style of the era. And what I mean by that is they had more of a punk sound, more of an American sound that they'd kind of honed since the late 80s and to now. So they were already, you know, very, very well-versed in what they were doing. And also their lyrics, while fantastic weren't part of the working-class daily life. They were more political protest songs, for lack of a better term. And, you know, that kind of didn't fit the mold of a Britpop band. And I think even themselves, they, they'd say that they weren't Britpop. But needless to say, they did play at the Big Neb with Park Show, which we'll talk about next week. And, in my opinion, one of, if not the best band ever to come out of Wills. And, you know, they deserve to be in their... They deserve to have their place in... British bands who were absolutely fantastic, but they weren't part of the Britpop scene. Radiohead, on the other hand, could be considered controversial. And let me explain. Uh, they had a sound that was Britpop, but for a start, they formed 
in a public school or in the United States terms, they formed in a private school. That already takes away from the working class element of the rest of the movement. Uh, also, their sound changed so drastically that they, you know, it went from being verse, chorus, verse, chorus to this more experimental sound. I don't consider Radiohead having a genre. I think personally that they are genreless. They are Radiohead. What 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 music do Radiohead play? Well, Radiohead. You know, um, great band. Don't get me wrong, but their their lyrical style and then later on their musical style plus the way they formed, in my opinion, does not lead to a Britpop band. Could be controversial, maybe, but that's up for you to decide later on, and we'll talk about that later. So let's let's get into uh, let's get into the movement, and we're going to start with where we began, and that begins like in most movements in a working class town, and in this case, Manchester. And Stone Roses were king. Their debut album, The Stone Roses, uh, was an absolute gem of an album, even though I have some problems with Ian Brown's lyrical content. Uh, I think John Squire is a fantastic guitarist, and the tunes that The Stone Roses had were absolutely fantastic. But, oh my word, if I had never heard another Ian Brown lyric, I think I could survive. Great, great front man, but I... Ugh. But uh, Stone Roses were king at this point. They were part of what was known as the Manchester or the Baggy scene. It featured many, many Mancunian bands, such as James, uh, the Inspiral Carpets, which a young Noel Gallagher was a roadie for, uh, the Happy Mondays, the Charlatans, the Real People. Heck, even Blur were not from Manchester, but they were considered part of the Baggy scene after their debut album Leisure was considered a Baggy album. It kind of had this funky vibe going on and, you know, played more to the clubs of the day rather than the rock venues. Just like the uh, Britpop movement, the Baggy movement did have a defining concert. And in this case, it was Spike Island, the uh, one of the most famous concerts ever made in the United Kingdom. Uh, around about 20,000 people showed up and... For a gig of that size was was very unusual back then, especially for the style of music that was being played. But um, from a technical standpoint, you know, and I am a technical guy, you know, I work in, I work in production all the time. The gig wasn't that good, but for the moment, for the movement, for what it meant to the people involved, it was a fantastic, fantastic gig. Um, it had many of the movers and shakers that would come in the audience. So you had, you know, for example, Noel Gallagher and uh, Mark Coyle, who were the driving forces behind the sound of Oasis. They were in the concert. Noel Gallagher himself called the concert the blueprint for my band. Uh, you know, so it was a very, very, very big event. And people wanted to see Ian Brown. People wanted to see John Squire. You know, they wanted to see these two attitudinal kids sing these songs that they've been hearing and that meant something to them and god damn it we're gonna make it we're gonna make it ourselves it was a defining moment of that era the problem was the stone roses could not keep this up and unfortunately they had a very very well publicized uh spat with their label and unfortunately for them it would take a four-year break in between their debut and the second coming the problem is is by that point they went from being the kings to just another band which was kind of a shame, and it kind of hyped the second coming up to the point where it couldn't reach, you know, where it needed to be, which was, you know, which was a shame, really, because the second coming was a good album. Um, it was a worthy follow-up, at least, anyway, to The Stone Roses. Manchester wasn't the only place where music was happening. You had Liverpool, had The Lars. Now, The Lars were... It, the Lars had a worldwide hit in There She Goes, 
and every guitarist worth his salt can play it, and I'm pretty sure everybody listening to this has heard it. If you haven't heard it, go search it, and you'll know what it is instantly. Uh, it was a worldwide hit, and the band were led by Lee Mavers. Now, from all reports, Lee Mavers is the most genius, genius, fantastic, wonderful songwriter who's also the most eccentric person you've ever met in your life. Uh, the thing is about The Lars, they released one album called The Lars. A lot of people did that, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, my band is called Dave and the Daves. This is our album, Dave and the Daves. Uh, the Lars released their one and only album, and for all intents and purposes, it is a masterpiece. One of the greatest albums released of all time. And the band hit it. They hit the cut that came out. It was... It, I don't, don't have to say... I don't know if it was the eccentricity of Lee Mavers. Or whether or not he kind of picked at it and picked at it. And the label got nervous and released it while they thought they had the best cut. But either way, one of the greatest albums of all time in the history of music. Is disowned by the people who wrote it. And performed on it. That's absolutely weird. The Lars would go on and split, and bass player John Power would go ahead and form Cast, which would be another great band in the Britpop wheel. And while the Manchester scene and the baggy scene was going down, another scene kind of overlapped it, and known as the shoegazing scene. Um, again, like the Manchester scene, like the uh, the baggy scene, it did kind of it did kind of feel like an embryonic Britpop. Looking back at it, you know, looking back in hindsight, and unlike the Stone Roses, which kind of moved around a little bit and everything like that, the shoegazing scene, everybody stood firmly still, planted their feet, and looked down at their pedals and their guitars, and it made it look like they were looking at their shoes. Hence, shoegazing. Um, the lyrics and tunes of the shoegazing scene kind of, you know, had psychedelic influences to it and very, very trippy, very, very haunting, heavy use of reverb, heavy use of effects. And, you know, it, it the sound was really, really good. And the reason that the artists looked down at their music, at, the, at their guitars, at their shoes, whatever you want to call it, is because they didn't want their antics to overshadow the music that they were doing. They wanted it to be about the music rather than the personalities. So it's kind of like when you watch an independent movie or you watch a big movie that the lead role is somebody is, I don't want to say no name, but is not a well-known actor or actress. You don't see Will Smith as the as the main character. You see this, you know, you see the, the, the character rather than the actor. And I think that led to, you know, that was one of the reasons why the shoegazing scene wasn't relatable to a lot of people, because it didn't have the characters. But the music itself is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, you had the Boo Radleys, a band who was like a chameleon. Uh, you had Catherine Wheel, Ride, My Bloody Valentine. The Verve were considered one of the early shoegazing bands too. It was, you know, it was a great, great music scene in terms of the music itself, but because of the lack of personalities, it didn't take off to a more mainstream audience. And during this time that, you know, that shoegazing was coming on, uh, and a lot of British acts were starting to be pushed aside, there were a couple of things that kind of happened in the British music scene that kind of influenced where music in Britain would go next. Uh, in 1991, rock legend, God, Freddie Mercury, uh, died of bronchopneumonia just days after announced that he was suffering from AIDS. Um, I think a lot of people overlook that in terms of how British music went, because Freddie was part of the old guard, and with him out the way, Queen kind of couldn't go further. 
Um, and the reason that the reason Queen couldn't go further was because you know Freddie was the voice of Queen. Um, I read a comment on YouTube on a Queen video. I think it was a Brian May video that somebody said, "I don't understand why Brian May wasn't." you know, didn't sing more often, he has the voice of an angel. And the first reply is, because he was understudy to Freddie Mercury, who had the voice of a god. You know, and I think that that's a very, very apt description. But uh, with Queen out of the way, and a lot of the older bands kind of winding down and moving over to solo, and then you had pure pop music had a lack of talent and a lack of interest, aside from maybe George Michael, and later on Take That, uh, it left a big, big vacuum. And what happened with that vacuum is that grunge moved into it. This whole different genre of music, completely different style, and led by Nirvana. But not just grunge. I mean, we're not talking about just grunge in here, but a lot of American alternative bands made the journey with them in terms of increased popularity. I know R.E.M. had been popular in the U.K., but they kind of popularity went higher during this time. Um, you know, But Nirvana themselves... Uh, they were considered the kings of American music at that point. Uh, Nevermind is an absolute fantastic album. It's very, very polished, and it's very, 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 very difficult to listen to in terms of loudness. Uh, it's a good album. It's a great album. Um, you know, all three of the musicians that worked on it were absolutely fantastic. Kirk Cobain is a very, very good guitarist. Maybe a little too overrated as far as I'm concerned in terms of certain things. Uh, Chris Novoselic is a very underrated bass player. And Dave Grohl is Dave Grohl. Uh, you know, we all know how good Dave Grohl is. Uh, behind the drum kit, with a guitar in his hand, uh, with a microphone in his hand. You know, and that together brought out one of the best albums of all time in Nevermind. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, the Varna thing was so huge in the UK that they were the first band to ever have a stage invasion on top of the Pops. Yes, I understand that Nirvana played the audience because of the fact they had to lip-sync and mime, but uh, yeah, it was the first time that the kids had gone on stage during Top of the Pops. Um, but like I said, you know, R.E.M. also came with them. They had a, a renewed popularity in that time. Uh, Automatic for the People, one of the greatest albums of all time. I, I say that a lot, but I mean, some of these albums are so good, they have to be considered some of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, Automatic for the People is one of them. Uh, it showed kind of a more vulnerable side, which would start to bleed into a lot of other acts, and I'll get to that in a minute. But you also had Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Lemonheads, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, The Pixies, with The Stone Roses going away. Freddie Mercury dying, and the music scene not having any more characters, and this was just bang. This was perfect for a scene to come in, um, you know. And you could say that a lot of British acts did release some good material. Look, I'm a fan of Blue. I like uh, I love Leisure. I think it's a great album. Park Life is a fantastic album. Blue is a fantastic album. Uh, Thirteen is a fantastic album. I've not listened to The Magic Whip, and to be honest, I don't think that uh, Think Tank is that good, but that partly has to do with Graham Coxon not being there. I like Modern Life is Rubbish. I think it's a very, very good album. I think it's a very, very good second album, a very, very good follow-up to Leisure. However, in terms of sales and critical reception, it was considered a flop. It was absolutely considered a flop. And that was one of the shining lights of the British music scene, you know, because Leisure was well-received, and the singles were well-received. But Modern Life is Rubbish was just, for lack of a better term, rubbish. You know, it was it was a bad, bad time for, for Blur. And considering they were one of the biggest lights of rock music, or, you know, musical instrument-based music at the time, uh, you know, it kind of pushed British music back even further. 
Now, the Manic Street Preachers were still flying the flag at the time. They just released Gold Against the Soul. And, you know, they kept the kind of the same thing that, that off their first album, that same uh, protest and, you know, very, very visceral lyrics, you know, that, that kept an eye, basically. Kind of like an anchor, you know. It was like, okay, you know what? Blue sucked. But the Manics, man, they're keeping British music alive. Now, Blue don't suck, but, you know, that's that was the perception at the time. Unfair? Yes, I think it was. But uh, what happened then was, you know, after the, after the modern life is rubbish, British music started bouncing back. And, you know, it's, it's weird how, how it happened. Uh, Elastica, who were formed from the ashes of Suede, uh, started release recent material and writing new material, and it started to get noticed. Suede themselves were releasing new material and starting to get noticed. Blur, Oasis, Pulp, Radiohead, The Verve, and Cast spent the latter half of '92 or between the latter half of '92 and the latter half of '93 either releasing or writing new material for the studio. Oasis had just been signed, Radiohead had just been signed, The Verve had just been signed, and they were on the verge of their breakouts. While this was happening, I mentioned Automatic for the People had kind of a downtone to it. A lot of the American acts that were coming over, they also had downtones in their lyrics. Um, you know, it was more and more morose, more and more depressing, more and more suicidal in their lyrics. And what happened was Nirvana were actually the makers of their own downfall in terms of, let me rephrase that, Nirvana were makers of the rise in British music. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, Nirvana had a lot of trouble recording In Utero, their second album. They rejected the sound of Nevermind, and they wanted to bring their own style. And if you've listened to the album, it's a very, very difficult album to listen to, period. It's, it's, I don't think it's that good of an album, to be honest. It's a masterpiece in what it was trying to accomplish, don't get me wrong, but I just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like the concept of it, you know. A couple of the tracks, Heart Shaped Box and Penny Royalty, were, were, mixed in a way and if they kept that production up i think it you know they would have they would have had a great album on their hands but um the process itself was wrought with difficulty so much so that and i've had this clarified by uh greg who you listened to last week and greg's a big nirvana fan and greg's considered a nirvana historian the phrase became as they would greet each other every morning you know hey dave how are you doing oh i hit myself and i want to die that one phrase, I hate myself and I want to die. It was bandied about and they actually wrote a song about it. While that was reported in the British music press and like a collective needle scratch happened amongst all the British musicians at the time who were seeing their record sales and their concerts being beaten by Nirvana. And it was not discussed, but they didn't get the joke. They didn't see the, the joking element of it behind it and therefore they thought that they were being serious. And they got mad. I mean, they got to the point where it's like, look, you know, you guys are telling kids that it's okay to be depressed and it's okay to want to kill yourself. And look, depression is a, is a very, very hard disease. I understand that. But they were like, no, we need to do something big. We need to do something happy. We need to do something more uplifting, more upbeat, more, uh, you know, positive in what they were doing rather than I hate myself and I want to die. Now, like I said, the joke was lost in translation. But the British acts didn't recognize that it was a joke to begin with, so they kind of, you know, started pumping up their effort and putting more hard work into what they were doing, and that led to kind of the release of the first Britpop albums. This coincided with the fact that those down lyrics were starting to be rejected by British audiences. 
So between mid-1993 and mid-1994, the first songs and albums were released. You had Park Life by Blur, that was a snapshot of London, for lack of a better term, and used a lot of Britishness in what it spoke about. Uh, you had lyrics like, you know, like I mentioned, um, you know, I'll get up when I want, except when I'm rudely awakened by the dustman. That is very, very a British phrase, dustman. That means, like I said, bin man or trash man, you know. Um, you had in um, Jubilee, which is a word that is used a lot in Britain, uh, you had, like, plays on his computer games. I know that Britain is the only country in the world that uses the word computer games as opposed to video games. Um, and then this is a low. Um, I love that song, and it's an absolute fantastic way to end the album in they put that stupid instrumental but it's a fantastic way to end the album but it is completely and utterly british it quintessentially british with things like you know the shipping forecast that they keep talking about you had suede releasing dogman star that uh, had its lyrics inspired by william blake and brett anderson's own drug use and i can kind of see that listening to some of, some of the songs back uh pulp released his and hers which was their breakout album after 10 years of trying to make it so here we have this band that's been touring for 10 years been working for 10 years just trying to get something trying to get a nibble and then because of these american bands coming in with very very down depressing lyrics boom here comes this great british act and i say great british i don't mean great britain i mean great comma British. They were fantastic. They released the singles from the album over a two-year period. Uh, but again, it was ten years after their debut. Uh, Elastica. I mentioned they were born out of the uh, the ashes of Suede. Suede kept on, but Justine Frischman used to be in Suede. And this band, you know, she wrote some really, really good lyrics. Ironically, they were signed to Geffen Records. So they broke the North American market before the British market, which I always found weird. You know, I always find, I always find that great when people do things, you know, bar-sackwards. Uh, <laughs> the Verve uh, released their debut, was Storm in Heaven, and it had very, very different elements of sound. You had psychedelic sound, space rock, rock. You know, it was very, very, you know, it was still very much a shoegazing album, but under the guise of what was becoming this new Britpop sound. And then you had definitely maybe by Oasis. Their debut album, it harkened back to classic British rock music. Um, very, very melodic. Very, very lyrical. And uh, the fastest selling debut album in British music history at that point. I think that was broken by uh, Hearsay, which were a pop act that were made from Pop Idol. Do you know what they're doing these days? No, seriously, do you know what they're doing these days? Because I haven't got a clue. I don't think anybody does have a clue. Um, but these were considered the first wave of Britpop. And they all had something in common that, uh, you know, that the second wave didn't. And I'll explain the second wave in the next episode. But the first wave of Britpop featured Ash, who were kind of like a, a hard rock band. Uh, Blur, who we've discussed. The Boo Radleys, who were like chameleons, they changed their sound every album. And it sounded absolutely fantastic. Uh, Wake Up Boo and Come On Kids, two completely different sounding songs, same band. Uh, the Charlatans, like the Blue Radleys, they kind of melded their style. You had Dodgy, Elastica, James was still around, uh, The Lightning Seeds, Oasis, Pulp, Shed 7, Suede, Sleeper, who uh, performed one of the greatest covers of all time, The Super Furry Animals, and The Verve. And what linked them all together was, like I said, their... Britishness and the fact that they all sounded different. Let me give you an example. Oasis, Ashen, they sounded like rock. You had James, Blur, Suede, Pop. They had elements of dance and funk with a more pop sound. 
Then you had the Charlton's, the Verve, and the Blue Radleys that filtered between different styles. And that's what made the first wave of Britpop probably the best wave. Because everybody had their own sound. Even if they had their own... They had the same theme, but their own sound. So, for example, Oasis were talking about working-class life in Manchester. Blur were talking about working-class life in the South. And boom, they had completely different ways of doing it, but they were the same type of songs, you know? Um... And all this, as all this was going on, you know, these guys were releasing their albums, the, the the singles were getting out there, British music is starting to make a comeback, and Blur released Girls and Boys to euphoric, euphoric reception. Uh, it was their first top five single since There's No Other Way in 1991, and everything looked great, and it looked like, you know what, we're going to have this great American sounds coming in. And then we're going to have these great British sounds coming in. And man, some of the collaborations, some of the great music that's coming through, some of the, even the rivalries, for lack of a better term, are going to be off the chart. And then we found out on April 8th, 1994, that the face of the U.S. music scene in the United Kingdom, Kurt Cobain, was found dead uh, from an apparent suicide. There are a lot of conspiracy theories that some say he was killed, some say it's a suicide. Um, He was his generation's John Lennon. Um, It was a very, very, very big loss to music when he died. And it did leave a huge vacuum in the music scene that was coming. And that was filled by the British bands. But uh, Kurt was eulogized, and he was considered a very, very highly tragic figure. And, you know, in in the aftermath of his death, um, a lot of American bands kind of had their lyrics as their way of processing dealing with the death of a friend and a colleague. Uh, R.E.M. in particular, that, uh, you know, the song Let Me In uh, was played with Kurt Cobain's guitar that was a gift to Michael Stipe. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was you know, it, they dealt with dealt with it very, very hard. Now, Dave Grohl would go on and form his own band, uh, the Foo Fighters, as we all know, and have a hard time in... Um, processing, the, I mean, that first album was processing his emotions on how he dealt with the death of his friend. But in terms of music, it was kind of the center point of this kind of shift. So you had, you know, within a six-week period, you had Blur releasing Girls and Boys, critical acclaim. Then you had Kurt Cobain is found dead. And less than a week later, Oasis came out with their first single and kind of shifted everything. It shifted everything, you know. A week after one of the hero, one of the heroes of music is dead, you were told you need to be yourself. You could be no one else, you know. And that kind of kickstarted. So you had Girls and Boys was kind of the engine ticking over, and Oasis hitting hitting their foot on the gas. Uh, Pulp had been, you know, Pulp, as I mentioned, had been around for a better part of a decade. They started to see success. Their singles were starting to get some more radio play. His and hers was treated, you know, with with great critical warmth. Uh, Paul Weller, who was the spiritual elder statesman of the Britpop scene, his music was starting to gain traction. Uh, Wildwood is a fantastic album, and the follow-up album that would be released in 1995, uh, Stanley Road, and I almost lost that, and I love that album, uh, would be released too. Uh, British pop music also takes an upturn. You had Wet 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 with Love Is All Around, their cover, spending a whopping 17 weeks at the top of the charts. Take That formed and was starting to come out there. You had Eternal coming out there. You know, So British music was starting to rise. And in death, Kurt Cobain kind of, ironically, just like Freddie Mercury's death, 
left a vacuum that the American bands took advantage of. And what I mean by that, I don't, don't think I think this is calculated or anything like that, but in terms of their popularity. So you had this big figure, Freddie Mercury, passed away, and in his place was these American bands who were playing their music. While in Kurt Cobain's death, the Britpop bands started playing their music and was starting to, you know, starting to become this this movement that people were moving into. Um, at the Brit Awards the next year, in 1995, in early 1995, Blur cleaned up. They won four of the major awards that no band has ever done before or since. Um, the Brit Awards, the way it worked was you had kind of two versions of the same award. So you had, you know, Best Album, International, British. Best Band, International, British. Best Female Act, International, British, and so on. And the big four were considered Best British Album, British Group, British single and British video. Blur wiped the floor with everyone. And Oasis would win Best Newcomer. Now, the reason I bring that up, the reason I'm always saying and Oasis, and Oasis, and Oasis when I talk about Blur, is because that very first year of Oasis' life, they always kind of, they always seemed like they were following Blur in everything that they did. But when Blur picked up the award for Best British Group, uh, they said, you know, this is for us, and I'm, we plan to share this award with Oasis. And everybody in the room, you know, politely applauds, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Oasis take it as kind of an insult, and mock Blur for doing that, saying, well, we wouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know, if we if we won Best British Artist that we felt that we did, we wouldn't have shared that with you. And that kind of started the, the, the simmering of the rivalry that would kind of dominate the second half of Britpop and the mutual dislike that both bands would have for each other. And at this point, we're going to pause it right there because we've got a lot more to talk about, and I've been talking for a good, I don't know, 30 minutes. Maybe it's going to be longer than that after I, you know, trim out some of the tongue-tied that I had, uh, because I do have tongue-tied, if you haven't noticed. Uh, but we're going to stop it right there. You know, we're about to experience the explosion of Britpop and how it would move through to other areas of British life and British popular culture. So before we go, I want to ask you this question. I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, and that simply is, are Radiohead a Britpop band? I personally think they're not. I think that they had a sound similar to it, but their formation and so on and so forth, their subsequent albums, not disqualify them, but kind of put them on a different part of music. You know, I don't consider them Britpop. Do you consider them Britpop? Let me know. The social media sites are in the uh, description of the podcast. And just let us know. We are going to post this on social media too. So if you want to join in, you know. And that is it for this week. We are going to speak next week about some of the albums of the era, mainly the four main ones. And, you know, keep tuning in. One moment, please. I just wanted to get to the place. Oh, okay, look. I understand. Today, you open up your phone, pull up Google Maps, type in where you want to go, and boom, you're on your way. It's so frustrating now. You make one mistake, and suddenly you hear the evil woman yell, recalculating. Recalculating. Ugh! I swear to God, if she says recalculating one more time, I will recalculate her. Anyway, that's a lot better than what my mom had to do. For her, the task was a lot more difficult. She had to go to her computer, 
go to some website or whatever and put in the address of where she wanted to go then she had to print out like a zillion pages killing all the trees too she didn't have an annoying thing to let her no she had to pay attention to what she was doing and where she was going if she was lucky imagine if she didn't have her web tv she would have to buy a map a real life map a map if you want to update a map what do you do draw a line with a pen or like spend actual money to get a new one Ugh! the point is we have it so much easier now with countless apps on the phone sat navs we can easily get to another place as long as we can put up with the witch in the box Rerouting. Changing your route now. Right, that's it. I'm absolutely gonna throw you out the window if you say we're coming like one more time. Do it. Ain't no party like a tiki bar party. October 21st at 9 p.m. It's a totally bodacious evening of all 90s tunes with Shreveport's own The Pony Dance. No cover to get in and great drink specials all night. Just be 21 and up with a valid ID. Visit the band at theholodex.com. The Polodex, your premier 90s music experience. So we're going to do some 90s trivia before we get out of here, and we're going to look from the 14th to the 21st of October this week. It's a little late 90s heavy, but you'll see why here as we uh, go through it. We are going to start in 1990 on the 20th, where a judge clears two live crew of obscenity charges that were filed back in July. Uh, on the 16th of October, 1995... See, that's how long it's been. The Million Man March happens in Washington, D.C. On the 21st of October, 95, Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon is found dead after an overdose at age 28. Uh, on the 17th of October, 97, I Know What You Did Last Summer, one of the biggest movies of the modern horror franchises was released. It was the very, very first one. Uh, on the 16th of October, 1998, however, The Bride of Chucky was released. Less said about that, the better. On the 15th of October, 1999, one of the greatest movies of all time, Fight Club, was released. A couple of days later, on the 19th, Billy Piper, who a lot of you may know as an actress and as one of the Doctor Who companions, uh, started her career releasing Honey to the Bee, her debut album. I just thought that was interesting, that's why I threw it in there. Uh, and also, Melissa Aftermore leaves Hole. A week later, she would join the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, that is significant because um, going back to the theme of Britpop, uh, we got the, you know, I can tell you the bubbling animosity between Oasis and Blur. Courtney Love and Billy Corgan did not like each other at this point, and it was like uh, uh, Alex out of Blur joining Oasis. You know, it, just, it, it was just one of these things. And finally, the 20th of October, 1992, an album would be released that would result in 12 million sales and be certified as Diamond. Kenny G, Breathless. The bane of my existence and my career. Ugh, gah. Um, okay, so uh, we're going to go back to the social media question of this week, and it is, simply put, prove me right or prove me wrong. Were Radiohead a Britpop band? 
Please send your answers to our social media websites on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. Uh, reply to our blog in the description below. You know, just go ahead and 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 let me hear your replies. Will Radiohead a Britpop band? I don't think they are, but I'd like to hear what you guys think. And that's it for this week's show, guys. Next week, we carry on with our review of Britpop. Instead of going into the second half of the history of it, we are actually going to look at four of the biggest albums of the era. That's What's the Story, Morning Glory by Oasis, Park Life by Blur, Different Class by Pulp, and Urban Hymns by The Verve. And I'm going to be joined by the wonderful, wonderful person who writes our blogs, and I'm going to be joined by Sarah. Sarah has been instrumental in helping me get this up and running. Uh, That's actually my wife, too. But she is very, very knowledgeable. One of the ways we met was through music. And she's very, very knowledgeable about everything that we're talking about this week. And she's going to be a great addition to the show. But that's it for this week. Guys, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to us. Look forward to hearing from you next week. Recalculating.